The vibration of change, that magical place where life shifts from struggle to ease, from stagnation to forward movement, from old ways of being to new ways of becoming. Yes, it can seem rather elusive to get there, but when you are in it, you feel it down to your very core, and it can positively affect everything in your life, from your relationships to your health and well-being, from your career path to your abundance, from the quality of your inner connection to the fullness of your self-expression. Here on The Christine Uptrich Show, we explore ways to get into that vibration of change with experts in the fields of consciousness, psychology, spirituality, health, healing, and science. Are you ready to step into your vibration of change? Hello, everybody. Welcome. So grateful you're joining us here today. You might be listening live in the Seattle area on 1150 AM KKNW. Uh, you might be listening live on TransformationTalkRadio.com from anywhere around the world, or of course, watching on Facebook Live on my professional page or on Transformation Talk Radio's page as well, um, or perhaps on one of the dozens of podcasts that sends up after the fact, and my YouTube channel. We're now getting the, the videos up afterwards on my YouTube channel, so please check that out. But wherever and whenever, you are going to be so grateful you've joined us here today. Um, before I... I, I introduce her i'm gonna um i gotta talk about one more thing but i just have to tell you when i saw the title of her book didn't know who she was didn't know about her story didn't even see the subtitle but when i saw the title of her book which is permission granted i knew here was somebody who faced some very difficult life lessons who transformed her own life and was sharing deep wisdom with the world and we're going to get into that in a minute but i did want to make a quick announcement um you know, we're living in an age of, of um, deep censorship, and I'm talking about um, relating to medical information, even amazing medical doctors. Uh, I did an interview with Dr. Lee Merritt uh, a couple of months ago that got pulled off of YouTube for God knows why, but you know, it was censored. And for those of you who've been following me, you know I'm teaching on the Academy of Divine Knowledge. And I've got a couple of classes up there already, a couple of presentations, one on the vibration of change and another on um, how seeking can get in your way and what you can do about it. And so if you're interested in checking that out and checking out this, this interview that is going to be replayed there on the Academy of Divine Knowledge, um, I invite you to go over there. And if you enter my last name, Upchurch, then you will get 10% off the registration. And by the way, it's not you're not just registering for my classes, you're registering for any and all the wisdom of the variety of amazing teachers over there. We're talking meditation, we're talking um, spiritual and psychological expansion. We're talking about getting access to some information that um, you know so, some corporations might not want you to find out about. But anyway, it's a, it's a great avenue and it's the Academy of Divine Knowledge. The link's also on my homepage of my website. Okay, so I just wanna um, get that out of the way because I'm really excited about my conversation today with Regina Louise. She is um, the author of this book called Permission Granted and I will read you the subtitle in a couple of minutes. She's got a couple of best-selling memoirs, Somebody's Someone, and someone has led the chi this child to believe. And they were made into a lifetime movie called I Am Somebody's Child, the Regina Louise story, which was nominated for a 2020 NAACP award for best director. 
She's a summa cum laude graduate of the California Institute of Integral Studies, and she's got a master's degree in fine arts. And if you hear her history, you're going to be amazed at how she, she was able to sort of pull herself up and, and move forward with that. She is a Hoffman process teacher, a workshop facilitator, and a motivational speaker. And she lives in the San Francisco Bay Area. Um, her story has been featured in various media outlets, including NPR, um, CBS Early Show, and Good Morning America. She's an amazing, um, inspirational woman. I would like to welcome our guest today, Regina Louise. Hi, Regina, welcome. Good morning and thank you. Thank you. You know, I have to read the subtitle of your book and I'm sure that over on Transformation Talk Radio, they're gonna be putting up an image of your book, which I love the cover too. Permission granted, kick-ass strategies to bootstrap your way to unconditional self-love. And oh gosh, we've got, we could talk about this concept of permission granted probably for hours on end. But I'm wondering, you know, you, you shared your inspirational story. We're going to talk a little bit about your story, you know, your own personal experience and, and how you were able to bootstrap your way out of some horrific situations. But um, I'm kind of curious why, beyond your own inspirational story, you decided to write yet another book that shares this kind of information with us to apply in our own lives. Or why? I, I am a dreamer, Ms. Upchurch, and one of the things I've always imagined, like I already have my Academy Award acceptance speech, the Golden Globe, the Emmy, that's how my mind works. I love to live in the realm of the imagination. And so I imagined that one day Oprah or, you know, Ellen or one of these incredibly iconic talk show hosts would ask me, how did you get from where you were to where you are now? And I thought, if I were to be asked that question, this is the answer. It would be a 300 plus page book that would thoroughly answer uh, and, and, and explain, if you will, not that one should ever have to explain their existence, but to give someone an opportunity to understand what happens when, when a human, for those who believe in the ways in which I believe, for a human to recognize the moment when spirit meets bone, and from that place, know that you are. So once I saw the place, met the place, experienced the place where spirit met bone, it was from that place I could architect a true sense of I am. I am good enough. I am bigger than my shame. As, and if I am, that means we all are, because ultimately, if we believe what Christian Neff says in her book, Self-Compassion, it's the suffering that connects us in our common humanity. And I tend to believe that, that there's a lot of truth there, 
It is the suffering that becomes the great equalizer. It levels the playing field as well as connects us into our own suffering. We, we don't suffer alone, although we may feel we're alone in our suffering. The truth of the matter is we're not. We're never alone. So this book is the answer, what if the iconic interviewers of the world were to ask, how, you know, given that I have two books, a one woman show, a movie, like what is it that I'm trying to say to the world? <laughs> like if anybody were listening, what do you imagine her, her soul and her psyche are trying to say? Well, that like somebody said recently, your life defies attachment theory. It literally turns attachment theory on its ear. If what you've done to get yourself here is a matter of that kind of self tutelage. Mm. And, and I'm going to want to I'm going to want to unpack that more because that's a very insightful um, statement about attachment theory. Um, but can you share with our viewers and listeners a little bit about your upbringing and your struggles and um, how you found your way out of some horrific, horrific programming? Right. So I grew up in the same kinship foster home that my biological mother was reared in. And my mother abandoned me there. She had me, which was very, very young. My sister at 13, me at 18. And my mother had my sister as a result of a familial rape, so incest. And my sister has since deceased and my mother uh, transitioned this past January anyway. I knew at a very young age that I was being held accountable for things that my mother had done as opposed to being dealt with with dignity in regard to my dignity rather and respect and because my mother had abandoned me in that home she herself had grown up in they weren't done extracting recompense from her soul. So I, I basically became the carryover because I apparently was highly spirited as she was. I think they call it precocious today, but back then it's, you're too big for your own britches. You talk too much. I had some of, some of the similar qualities that she possessed. And so it was easy for them you know, hurting people hurt people. So let's put this in context. Hurting people hurt people. They were hurting. And then you see this bright-eyed, freckle-faced, redhead kid who is different, different looking, different acting, different being. Then the, I looked a lot like my mother. And so it was easy for them to, to carry over the resentment and those feelings, those negative ways of being with her. And, and so they wanted to cascade that onto me. And I just said, no, we're not having it. Like the Christians would say, get behind me, Satan, because that ain't going to happen this day. <laughs> okay, <laughs> You know, hurting people hurt people, but you know what? Mm -mm, I've had enough. So I was that kid who 
I've always believed in imagination. Einstein says imagination is more powerful than knowledge. So I came out of the gate with that. I came out of the gate thinking what, living my life and believing what Einstein espoused without even knowing he did so. The day came when I said, you know what, God, you know, look, I am not interested in being beaten to death, but I have a feeling that's gonna be what happens if if I don't leave. So I tell you what, if this woman hits me again with a cut off green water hose, an electrical cord, a cord pulled from an iron, a hot wheel track, if I get beat one more time, that will be indicative that they're trying to kill me and I need to go, I need to save myself. So you let me know, Lord, how it's going to go down, and I will be in service <laughs> to the word. And I had recently found the value in Sunday school of John 3.16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, and whosoever shall believe shall not perish, but have everlasting life. So I was done. Like, boom, believe it, let's go. So the day came, and hurting people hurt people, and she hurt me. And it hurt me to the core, to the, again, that place where spirit meets bone. And I knew that it was my responsibility to save my life. And I left. And I'm one of these people, Ms. Upchurch, I don't look back. Mm-hmm. We're done. I have that sort of uh, sovereign power where my word my word is awake, it's alive, and it's aware. And when I speak well, the word, it is what it will be. Now, um, Regina, please call me Christine because we are we are talking soul to soul. Okay. And uh, yeah, it's your story is incredibly powerful. And yet, I've got to ask you, where along the way? I mean, many people get exposed to spiritual teachings of variety, you know, including Christianity, but they don't develop that faith. What was it about you or what happened that allowed you to have that faith, to tap into it and to act upon it? Beautiful question. Thank you. I believe one It was that day in Sunday school. There was something about the way the reverend said what he said that struck a chord, literally, I think my central nervous system, my my spinal cord, there was something in it that, and I thought, ah, yes. And then as my life unfolded, something told me to listen to the particular lyrics of a song. So my favorite song is Oh Holy Night. And I remember something happening in my body when when the the, the verse, uh, okay. Lowly the world in sin and there till he appeared and the soul felt its worth. That right there. Oh. 
the moment the soul felt its worth. When I heard that song, every time I would literally fall on my knees and I'd get choked up. I would fall on my knees and I would listen. And I knew then that I was worthy. I knew, like, I was willing to fight tooth and nail to preserve that which recognized itself in that song. Wow, that's so powerful. You know, recognizing your worthiness is, is huge in this life. And I, I know that one of the things you do through speaking engagements, your, your books, as well as your coaching, that you are helping people to unlearn conditioning and to relearn about their worthiness. And I, I think that there's probably nothing more important in our development as souls in human form than to embrace our worthiness. Um, but you had several action steps to go from you know, being in a horrific situation where you're being told you're not worthy, you're having somebody act out their, their inner hurt externally through beating you to going to college, getting your master's degree, um, getting your books written, getting, getting your powerful story out there. What were some of the, the action steps you took along the way to express more of who you were and to develop the platform for sharing your message? Wow, big question, scales a, a big time. Well, I remember, well, first of all, I was in solitary confinement during the same time that Nelson Mandela was, let's just say stationed in his cell on Robben Island. We were having a simultaneous experience on opposite sides of the world, but and for reasons not so different. His, obviously, on a much wider scale, mine more about understanding and preserving and fighting for my dignity to, to love who I wanted to love and to be adopted by the person who I wanted to be adopted by, regardless of skin color, race, creed, or color. But because she lost that right to adopt me, I lost the right to belong to a family. I thought, you know what? I'm just too peed off. I am like, like now, now I'm, I'm, I'm angry. And now you, I'm going to close the gap on my own disadvantage. I am going to use every skill set I have. I will employ every single skill set I have on behalf of living a life that is, as Oprah would say, one's best life. Well, I've, I've, I made a pact to live as best I can a life of permission, a life of yes, a life where I am the arbiter of what it is I would like to experience. You know, some people say, oh yeah, go ahead and have hope. Even when I'm coaching people, they say, you know, yeah, I, I guess I'll have hope. And I'll say, you know, that's where 
we're either going to get on the same side or you're going to need to find a new coach. But there's no such thing in my practice as you, oh, okay, idly, ineffectually relying on a hope. But the only way we're going to get to the other side of your own personal disenfranchisement in terms of emotional is you need to be that hope. Hope in action. What does that mean? What are the so, qualities of hope? Like you better. So, what's the difference between? Sorry, didn't mean to interrupt. Um, what's the difference between having hope and being hope? In my opinion, having hope is passive. It's expecting hope to come and find you, to come and seek you out. Having hope that hope will come. The difference in being a hope is you are everywhere. You are a possibility of excellence, period. And how do you scale that out? How do you extend that out? How do you become the bridge upon which someone will walk across your back to their own personal salvation? How do we extend ourselves as that hope right? To alight somebody else's spirit, to alight someone else's. I had an interview uh, earlier this week and the woman said, oh my God, how do you have so much vitality? And I'm thinking, how do you not? (laughs) (laughs) Like no offense, she was fabulous. And then when I think back to that woman who I mentioned earlier, who had wanted to adopt me, Mm-hmm. When it, we, we went through this whole press junket, you know, 17 years back, where they asked, what was it about her? You work with so many children. Why this one? And she said, it was her light. Mm-hmm. So when I think about being in solitary confinement, Christine, no windows, no door handles. I'm on concrete floor in my own urine defecating because I'm so terrified. I am a 15-year-old little girl. I My sweet 16, that's on my 16th birthday. That's where I was. And you know what? When, when, and I'm going to tell you this. 20 years later, I go and I speak for the United Way, the power of the purse. And we're in this beautiful tent outside Nordstrom's, tens of thousands of dollars. It's a $10,000 plate event. And one of the women on the committee who had hired me or, or recommended me to be the speaker was also a counselor when I lived at the Stockton Children's Home. She said, I remember she came up to me the day I walked through in the tent and she said, and I'm going to get back to being in solitary confinement in just a moment. She said, I remember you. I made the recommendation for you to be here and I want you to know I'll never forget the day you came to our organization and you would just sit in your room and cry for your mama. All you would say is, "Ah, and I opened your file and there was no mother listed. Back to being in solitary confinement, the light, the only thing that came into that room across the threshold was light. I spoke my mama 
my, my desire for her into that life. I spoke my future. I spoke all of what this is into that light. I planted those seeds. And then I knew when I would be let from there, I would have a destiny. I would have a future because they were already planted in the light. So I've always, to the best of my ability, oh, trust me, I've had darkness come upon me in ways that I would not want anybody I know and love to experience, but also in that darkness, light was there. And I always had that choice to, to metabolize the light, to know that this too shall pass, but that I am the bridge through which it shall pass. So I don't believe even as a coach to try and cognitively convince or talk my my clients out of what they're feeling, out of what they're thinking. I'm that person that says, be still and know you are worthy of your own suffering. You are worthy of your own broken heart. And you, you alone are the passageway through which the change you seek will come about. It's about employing the brilliance, employing the light, employing this genius, this genius spirit as it's having a human experience and to hold space for brilliance, to do what it does. It healed, you get cut, you get healed, right? Something that simple. So definitely on the emotional levels, you too shall be healed, Mm -hmm. but give it the opportunity to be worthy. I have worked my tailbone off to be worthy, Christine, to feel worthy of my own broken heart, of my own, the degree of aloneness, the degree of aloneness that I have traversed is the very thing that we as human beings sought to never feel. Mm. It is that existential crisis. It is that thing that would slay us if, if we don't have the capacity to, to, to be in it. So I've had to learn to be in the terror of my aloneness. Because see, honestly, honestly, Christine, I'm not making this up. I'm not, I'm not using my story, storytelling skills to embellish the truth. Christine, I had no one, but I had all of who I needed, which is why I was able to write the book. I had myself in a way that uh, is oftentimes difficult to to translate. One of the images that came to mind as you're, you're telling your amazing story and finding the light within it and allowing the light to, to help you to move through and flourish, I kept envisioning a seed in the soil it's like the seed is in complete darkness, 
and seeks the light in order to grow. Mm. Um, and it, it's just amazing the the light that you knew was there to grow through the darkness, mm-hmm. to be able to you know reach the light and become that bridge that you talk about to mm-hmm. serve others. We've, mm-hmm. we've got a lot more to talk about, but we're going to take a quick break. Um, mm-hmm. But when we return, I do want to talk about that attachment theory on it, you know, turning that on its head, because that's fascinating. And I want to hear some of your, um, some of your exercises that you offer in the book to help people guide themselves through their, their sense of unworthiness to find that light and become that light. Stay tuned for more with the amazing Regina Louise here in just a few moments. I'm Christy Nepchurch, and this is a Stellar Reflections Minute. For centuries, spiritual traditions have talked about how humans have an energy field, or aura, surrounding them. Although skeptical scientists refuted this for decades, science is now beginning to catch up with spirituality. Scientists can actually measure light emanating from living beings, so they can measure the human aura, which in scientific terms is known as the biofield. Many medical practitioners around the world use an instrument to evaluate a patient's biofield for the purpose of diagnosing illness. They understand that imbalanced or insufficient light in a person's energy field indicates a physical or emotional problem. The good news? There are ways to balance and increase your light, resulting in greater well-being. For more information, please check out StellarReflections.com or call 425-999-9836. That's 425-999-9836. The vibration of change, that magical place where life shifts from struggle to ease, from stagnation to forward movement, from old ways of being to new ways of becoming. If you're like I am, it can be rather elusive to get there, But when you are in it, you feel it down to your very core, don't you? And it can positively affect everything in your life, from your relationships to your health and well-being, from your career path to your abundance, from the quality of that inner connection to the fullness of your self-expression. On The Christine Upchurch Show, we explore ways to get into that vibration of change with experts in the fields of consciousness, psychology, spirituality, health, healing, and science. Join me, Christine Upchurch, every Friday at 11 a.m. Pacific Time, 2 p.m. Eastern Time on KKNW AM 1150 and Transformation Talk Radio and learn new ways to step into your vibration of change. Welcome back to the Christine Upchurch Show here on KKNW AM 1150 in the Seattle area, Transformation Talk Radio around the world and various other places, including my YouTube channel. We are talking today with an amazing, inspirational woman, Regina Louise, who is the author of three books. Her most recent book is called Permission Granted. Now, Regina, you know, um, you, you talked about the, the Lifetime movie on the break, and I want you to share with our listeners and viewers the name of the movie and what you feel they could get out of watching that. Wow. Well, the name of the movie is... I am somebody's child, the Regina Louise story. I hope that viewers take away the power of resilience. I think resurrection and resilience are twins. 
And the ways in which the, the character, and I will say the young woman who played me, because yes, I'd say 85% of this story is pulled from both of my books. And then you have the remaining percent that they use to, to move the movie forward, the storyline forward for, 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 for dramatic intentions. But what we've been discussing and how my mind works is, and what I, what my younger self came up against. I think there are, there are strong images that are representative of what I'm talking about. And there are some images that I'm not going to mention because I don't want to give it away. And, you know, my faith in, in what's possible was definitely tested. And, you know, in the way that they show it in the movie, it's not quite the way it happened. It happened 10 times worse, far more frequently. So every dramatic point in this movie happened several times. And yeah, but no one would watch it if, if we told the, the literary truth. So I would invite viewers to, to open their hearts, to recognize how systems put the onus on the innocence of children going through unconscionable, horrifying circumstances. And the children are expected to, to become so adultified, so, so adultified. And for those who don't know, African-American girls, even now, are five times more likely than their white counterparts to be considered criminals, to not, they're not be seen as innocent, therefore needing less protection, are far more sexually promiscuous and far more sexually seductive to invite their perpetrators. And because it's called adultification, and because of that, they get exposed, we get exposed to circumstances and thus not, not advocated for five times more likely. And those same stats or those same, that same idea of adultification was being played out, you know, by upon me as a young girl. So now I can look back and have compassion. So I would like the viewers to recognize that what I am, what I went through as that character in that film, it's happening a hundred times more now. Not a lot has, has, not a lot has happened to protect, to cultivate, to grow the psycho-emotional aspect of young people going through foster care. Mm -hmm. So it's that We'll get into the attachment. There is 
no attachment. Attachment theory in that case is really thrown out because the, the code of ethics that governs a lot of the systems that interface with these children are you do not attach. Yeah, and, and I know that there's been a whole lot of scientific research into the importance of attachment, particularly it, you know, in the early years. Um, and so those people who don't get that healthy attachment can become serial killers. I mean, there's, there's a lot of evidence that those people who are just, you know, sociopaths, psychopaths, are those very people who didn't have the attachment. And yet here you are having attachment to self, attachment to God, and clearly you've you've developed attachments in, in, in terms of relationships and, and within the context of, um, you know, caring for and reaching people through your, your presentations, through your coaching. So why is it that attachment theory isn't always right? And what is it about your scenario that um, has allowed you to thrive despite the fact that you did not get what you needed? Not only didn't get what you needed, you got the opposite of what a child needs. Oh. So say your question again, what is the question you're asking? So how is it that given that you did not, not only didn't get the attachment, it's like, it's worse than not getting the attachment. You got, um, the rage and the hurt projected onto you of you not being enough. So it's not only lack of attachment, it's, it's, it's being deliberately hurt on some level. Um, and yet you grew up to thrive and to attach. So how did you not turn into the sociopath or the psychopath? Right. So I love as I'm going to slow this down because my spirit is talking to me. I can't, I don't, I, I don't know the questions you're going to ask. Therefore, I can't prepare for the question, right? Yes. right? So I'm just going to take a moment and I'm going to drop in and respond to what I can respond to in your question. And I want to speak truth to the power of spirit. So this is what's coming through for me. Actually, what I'm now recognizing is I did attach. I attached, as I said, to John 3.16. I attached to the power of believing that if I chose to believe, I mean, imagine a child as imaginative as I was and still am. Imagine saying, if you believe that something powerful was able to give away its flesh and blood as an offering for the world to live. I mean, we can get into some serious self-aggrandizement with that. That can go straight on up to megalomaniac if it gets too weird and, and not balanced. But for me as a child, that, that, Understanding that, understanding that it's okay, suffering is going to happen. And that even if suffering is happening, I'm not the suffering. Mm -hmm. I am not that, 
Okay. Like suffering is going to happen, but I'm not the suffering. Suffering is going to find its person to act out what it's going to act out, but it's not all of who I am. It's an experience that moves through me. And it may feel as though it's moving through me, in me, as me at the moment, but it's going to pass. And then the second I attached to hope, I attached, you know, to hear again the song. Low lay the world in sin and error family till he appeared in the soul of his work. I attach. Spirit met bone. I suspect there are many ways that aren't so heteronormative for, for souls to, to find their way into existence, into being, into a certain kind of maintenance. So I attached to John 3.16. I attached to the truth of the soul feeling its worth. You know, as I was on my way here today, I saw a human. I was walking my very beautiful dog whose hair looks a lot like mine. She's a labradoodle. She's a rust-colored labradoodle, oh, right? And we love both that. Have, yeah. Right? We both have hazel eyes. Just, we're both too cute. Like, if she could have freckles, it would be over. And as we're walking... <laughs> Right, as we're walking to my to my co-working uh, space, this man was staring at my dog and smiled this effervescent smile and said, "Beautiful dog." And I know he was talking about me, but that's a whole nother thing, Christine. And I was like, "As is your smile." And I recognize I am attracted to light. I'm I am good at what I do because I see beyond the patterns. I see beyond the conditioning. I see beyond the ties that bind us to our lowest common denominators, mm. right? I had no one growing up, no one. I had my first birthday party. I don't even remember sometime in my thirties. Well, I had a, a one when I was a girl in uh, foster care. And then I sent myself my own birthday cards. I would send letters when I became an author. I would send letters to every hotel or every place I was going to be on, on the tours, you know, 20 years ago to support myself. I would set up flowers to be sent because I wanted to shore up my own innocence. I wanted to show up shore up, I'm sorry, my own courage, my own tenacity. I wanted to, to acknowledge that and give myself permission to recognize my valuing me, as Derek Winnicott would say, the good enough mother, my ability to, to recognize the good enough mother in me and to recognize frustrations are part of life, this, that, it's all a part of life. And not only can you do it, Regina, because I talk to myself, you have what it takes, you are what it takes, and that's, that's resilience. I can, I have, I am. Mm. And that's what I've had to do. That's what I've had to do, Christine. Be very clear. No one did it. No one was going to do it. So one of the hardest things I've ever had to do in my life is take my response. I, I was resentful 
I was so angry. My 40s, my early 50s, I'm in my middle 50s. I was so rageful and resentful that I was stuck with raising myself to the best of my ability that I, I would self-punish. I would, would, would mistreat myself. And then I learned how to flip that and seek my own approval so that I wasn't constantly moving from my deepest core pattern of like, like toxic codependence. Come on, I was raised in a system. Toxic codependence. So I became a Hoffman teacher to employ the codependent pattern. And so instead of me, you know, looking for other people for this, that, and the other, I now employ my capacity, my, my deep gift of empathy, my deep gift of compassion. Instead of making it about one person who can be my savior, I instead am my own savior and I model that for other people. I, I love how you were saying that you sent yourself flowers and letters and to me, that is really about visualization in action. Because um, you visualize that kind of support, that kind of love, that kind of appreciation, that kind of connection. And you gave it to yourself through action, not just up here, but in the physical realm. Oh, yeah. um, so I absolutely love that. And But also you talk about, you, you talk a lot about that in, in your book too, about how we talk to ourselves and you speak about affirmations, but you've got another term for it. What is it that we, we do within the context of self-talk that sabotages us? And how do we reframe that and love ourselves? Mm -hmm. So you're talking about love formations. And I love that you're mentioning that. So I believe or suspect, let me just say, I suspect now, as I said, I'm, I'm a Hoffman process teacher. We talk a lot about the patterns that governed our lives as children, patterns that we all unwittingly go into or take on in exchange for belonging, being a part of the pack, not being shown, not being you know, kicked out of the pack. So in order to belong, we, to be loved, to be a part of something or someone, we take on our pattern, our parents' behaviors, the admonitions, the ways of being. And then as we grow, we, it's their voice that we normally hear in our heads. It's their voices that we use to shame ourselves by saying horrible things. It's their voices that we hear our caretakers, our primary caregivers. So, so the self-talk, more often than not, unless, unless the initiate, I'm just going to say the initiate, right? The individual, the seeker who decides to go through his or her own rite of passage in order to individuate from their parents, which 
a lot of adults don't get to do, especially mm -hmm. Americans, because what are our rite of passages, you know? A lot of it is based on class, right? Class systems. Right. In the Latinx culture, there's a quinceanera. In the, in the Jewish culture, there's a bar and bar mitzvah. But for Americans, and we have cotillion balls, but again, class systems. Yeah. But what do we have to grow, to grow that young adulthood into, to grow that young child into an adult? We don't have a lot of systems. So the, the internalized emotional self tends to be arrested in so many different places and yet chronologically keeps moving towards adulthood. So oftentimes the adult chronologically is 50, but the emotional self is arrested at only heaven knows a myriad of different places. So because that there isn't that attunement, right? That attachment, what ends up happening is one can feel like a fraud. One can feel as though they're an imposter because the child is still trying to negotiate, mitigate, trying to, to manage all the hurt, all the suffering. And if they've not had the opportunity to be seen, to be heard, to have an amends made on their terms, they are split. Yeah. It's that whole duality. Right. And, and I think I've been thinking a lot about tribalism, not in terms of um, indigenous people, but how we are tribal in nature and our first tribe is our family. And so we have this, I believe it's in our DNA, this, this um, innate fear of being rejected by our tribe. And so if we have a different belief system um, or in some way we are rejecting the the um the conditioning of our original tribe or one of our tribes along the way then we really feel like we're you know on a on a boat with no motor and and no sail and don't know where we're going and we fear death and so on on some level we have to be willing to examine our tribal beliefs examine where they came from and examine how we can it's safe to step away from the tribe well, I'm going to back up everything you said on a raft and we, we fear death. Well, that's been my, most of my life because I rejected, I rejected the abuse. I put skin in the game to disrupt the narrative that I was a nobody's child. Mm -hmm. And as I said, the aloneness and the terror with which I've learned to live with is the very thing that 99% of the people I've ever met in my life are solving to not have happened. So it goes to say, we are going to buy into that conditioning. We are likely to align even when it does not feel true to who we are we're willing to psychically to to have a psychic death it, it it means 
I'm going to, if, if, if it's psychic death, go along with the, with, with, with the status quo. I'm going with the status quo. I'm going with that normative. If it means I will be floating on a raft in the middle of the Atlantic with no land anywhere in sight, not even a soccer ball. Okay. <laughs> not even a soccer ball <laughs> to the friend. Right. So, you know, you, your question, your question, let me just say the last thing, your question, as we unpack it and contextualize it in this moment, I recognize that for all those people, immigrants, refugees, foster care, divorcees, young people, human beings who are rejected because of their gender, because of their sexuality, all of us, whether you're at the border detained in cages or walking the streets of the tenderloin because those who you need to accept you in order for you to feel some sense of, of your own humanity. We are the ones who I, I write and I do what I do for these people. That's my tribe. Regina, we've run out of time. What your website how can people connect with you i love instagram so feel free to follow me at the real regina louise that's my name not the the article but the real regina louise and that's instagram facebook is just regina louise and i am updating my website now it's www.iamreginalouise.com Subscribe. I'm going to be leading workshops and retreats. So subscribe so that you can become amongst the drive of permission. Thank you um, for being such an inspiration and for joining us here today, Regina. You're welcome, Christine. Again, thank you for sharing your platform with me. And thank you all for joining us. We look forward to talking to you again soon. Thanks so much for tuning in today. If you'd like to empower yourself to step further into your vibration of change, please visit my website at christineupchurch.com where you can learn more about my insights, upcoming events, and private sessions.